We're going to read from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, first 11 verses. It's on page 1180 in the Pew Bibles, and it will be on the screen. Philippians 3, beginning at verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, here's a question for you, a couple of questions. Are apostles allowed to get angry? And are apostles allowed to use bad language? That seems to be what Paul is doing in this passage. Now, the background is this. Paul set out on his missionary journeys. He would go into a particular area. He would preach the gospel. People came to faith. He'd gather them together. And while still preaching the gospel to people he hadn't heard, he would begin to build a church. He would teach new Christians the faith. And when the time was right, he would appoint leaders to take that forward, and he would move on to somewhere else. But following Paul, there were a group of Jewish Christians, very orthodox, strict Jewish Christians. And they would come along into the church that Paul had set up, all these new Christians, and say, okay, Paul's done a good job, but we just want to tell you, Paul hasn't told you everything. Paul's told you, you've got to believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep all the laws of the Old Testament. You've got to become a Jew to be a proper Christian. And this is what Paul is warning the Philippians against. These are the teachers that he's talking about. And the language he uses is very strong. It doesn't come across in our nice, polite English translations. He calls these teachers dogs. Now, I know you all love dogs, don't you? Lovely, cute things or or powerful, loyal protectors and all that kind of stuff. In the first century, no. Dogs were scavengers, not pets. 
dogs were dirty and smelly. They lived on rubbish tips, eating stuff that had gone off. They would attack anybody that was weak and vulnerable. Dogs were not loved. Dogs were not liked. And the word dog was always used as an insult. In fact, the word dog was used to describe a male prostitute. That's the kind of level of uh, contempt you're getting to when you call somebody a dog. Also, there's a bit of irony here because some of the very conservative Jews referred to all Gentiles, all non-Jews, as dogs because they had this idea that God had only created Gentiles in order that they could burn in the fires of hell and Jews were the only people that mattered. So they called them dogs. And Paul's reversing this and saying, these people who are the kind that would say the Gentiles are dogs, these are dogs. It's an extremely offensive and derogatory term. And then he calls them men who do evil. You see, they came in and they said, we are coming to preach righteousness to you. We're coming to preach holiness and goodness. And Paul says, no, they're coming in. They are preaching evil. They are preaching heresy. They are preaching sin. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. It's a play on words in the Greek language which can't be translated into English. The nearest we can get to it is to use uh, a phrase that Paul uses in Galatians where he says they're not circumcisers, they're castrators. But the Old Testament background behind it is the pagan religions in Canaan used to, people used to work themselves up into ecstatic frenzy and they would slash their, their arms and their body and they would mutilate themselves as part of their worship to their gods, the Baals. And the Old Testament, God specifically says to the people of Israel, do not do this, do not mutilate yourselves like the pagans do. And so Paul is saying, these guys claim that they're bringing circumcision, which the Old Testament commands. Actually, what they're doing is bringing mutilation, which the Old Testament forbids. And then when Paul describes all those benefits that these teachers valued so highly, and which he, Paul, says, I possess them all, he describes them as rubbish. Again, a very polite word. The word literally, and I use another polite word, is excrement. The old authorised version translates it as dung. It was also used to refer to rotten food, the kind of stuff that the dogs ate on the rubbish tips. So he's referring back. These are dogs, and what they give you is dung. What they give you is rotten. It stinks. Wow. What is Paul doing? Paul's a nice, polite English gentleman, isn't he? He doesn't say things like that. Why is he so angry? Why is he using such strong language? Well, it's not because he is jealous of these people or that he feels in any way inferior to them. He says he's got all they have and more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day exactly in accordance with the law. I was born a Jew. They are trying to get Gentiles to convert to Judaism. No, he was born Jewish. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He can trace 
his family ancestry, which was a very important thing in those days. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrew, which may mean a number of things, but probably means at least in part that he spoke and read the Hebrew language. Not all Jews that were born outside of uh, Israel did. They only spoke Greek. But no, Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I speak the language. I read the language. Within the Jewish nation, he was a Pharisee. That was the strictest, most religious sect amongst them. Was he enthusiastic and zealous in his faith? Yeah, he was out there to stamp out heresy, especially these wretched Christians. And he was engaged before his conversion in persecuting Christians. And he says, as far as the law was concerned, I was perfect. You could be like that. If you have a religion that's about tick boxes, you can be perfect because there's a whole list of things you must do and you can do them. And a whole list of things you mustn't do and you can not do them. Tick, 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 tick. Perfect. Paul was like that. Many of the Pharisees were like that. These religious teachers would have claimed to be like that. Paul is not jealous of them or feels that they're somehow superior to him. He said, no, everything they've got, everything they're saying you must have, I've already got it. And he's not saying that circumcision in itself is a bad thing. We read in Acts that on one occasion, when Paul has taken Timothy onto his team as an evangelist, he has Timothy circumcised. Timothy's father was a Gentile, a Greek. Timothy's mother was a Jew. Timothy hadn't been circumcised. Is that a bit hypocritical of Paul? No. Because what Paul is doing with Timothy is not saying you're not a proper Christian until you're circumcised. He is having Timothy circumcised to give Timothy the freedom to evangelize within Jewish communities where he would be totally unacceptable if he wasn't. So he's saying circumcision isn't bad in itself. And where it's necessary and where it promotes the gospel, yeah, let's do it. So what is it that makes Timothy so mad? Not Timothy, Paul so mad. Well, it's this. Whenever anybody says, you need Jesus and circumcision, you need Jesus and keeping the law, you need Jesus and you need to become a Jew, they take away from Jesus. They say his sacrifice on the cross, his death, and his resurrection are not sufficient. Not Jesus alone, but Jesus and. And that makes Paul absolutely furious. What is a Christian? Well, Paul defines it in one way in verse 3. It's someone who glories... In Christ Jesus. In other words, somebody who has accepted the forgiveness that Christ offers and is trying to live for him. Who says, yeah, life is about Jesus. He's changed my life. I've been forgiven. And the second thing he says, a Christian is someone who worships by the power of the Spirit. In other words, in whom the Holy Spirit lives and who, take that word worship in its widest sense, lives out their life trying to to follow the lead, the guidance of the Holy Spirit within them. And then thirdly, says a Christian is someone 
who puts no trust in anything or anyone for salvation. There are lots of things in the Christian life which are good, but when it comes down to how do I become a Christian, how am I saved, it's all about Jesus. What he's done on the cross and the work of his Holy Spirit in us, it's nothing to do with the things that we add on. Now, we would probably not today say to someone who becomes a Christian, right, you've got to be circumcised. Although we're Baptists, strangely enough, we don't even say to people, now you're a Christian, you have to be baptized. We encourage people to be baptized. We don't make it compulsory. But we do have things, often unwritten, and maybe just in our thoughts and our attitudes, that say, well, a proper Christian does this and this and this. A proper Christian doesn't do that and that and that. When I was a a teenager, I was taught what a proper Christian did. Proper Christians came to church twice on Sundays and went to the midweek prayer and Bible study meeting. And if you didn't do that, you weren't a proper Christian. I later discovered that there were Baptist churches who regarded that as really very liberal. And a proper Christian goes to church three times on Sunday because in the afternoon you turn up to teach at this Sunday school and goes twice in the week because only liberal churches would combine a prayer and Bible study meeting. Proper churches and proper Christians have one meeting for prayer and a separate meeting for Bible study. So you can extend these things forever and ever. This is what proper Christians do. Another thing I was taught, proper Christians don't drink. It's interesting, back then... Drinking, no. Smoking, nobody bothered. Everything's reversed now. Smoking, Drinking, yeah, that's fine. Let's go down the pub and have our meeting. Because these are all inessentials. Yeah, you can argue at a case for what's right and what's wrong on any of them um, according to the situation. But they're not essentials. And it's this danger that we say, you're only a Christian if... And then we add on things of our own. And in so doing, we take away from the soul sufficiency of Jesus. We are Christians because of the grace of God shown in the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and demonstrated by the life of the Holy Spirit in us. And if Jesus has accepted people as Christians, as evidenced by that Holy Spirit, then they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we love and welcome them. And of course, we want to disciple them and we want to teach them because they're not perfect Christians. I let you into a secret. We are not perfect Christians either. We need to disciple others as we are discipled. I've been a Christian for a long time, but there's still things I need to learn. Things I need to learn in my head, things I need to learn in my behavior, things that need to be changed. That's true for all of us. But it doesn't mean I'm not a proper Christian. We are not to set standards which God has not set or to put barriers in the way of those who are seeking to live for Christ. And then Paul goes on and he uses an accountancy illustration. I'm on dodgy ground here because I'm not great with figures and finance and all that sort of thing. But I think it's simple enough. He's basically talking about a profit and loss account. And you know the thing, on one side, you put, this is the profit. These are our assets. These are the things we've got. This is what's 
to our gain. On the other side, these are our debts, these are our losses. And he's got all those things that he's listed, all those great achievements, which are good things in themselves. It was not a bad thing to keep the Old Testament law. It's not a bad thing to be filled with zeal for God. He puts all those things, he says, they, most people would say, are in the profit column. But I have chosen to move them into the loss column because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. In comparison with that, anything else that the world wants or can offer is a loss. That is the only true gain. Wow. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave me? Paul says he wants to gain Christ. That has to have a starting point. And maybe there's some here who've never experienced the love of Jesus, who've never been forgiven because you've never asked. Jesus is waiting. He's done all that is necessary. There are no conditions you have to fulfill. Just ask, Jesus, will you forgive me? Will you take me as yours? It's as simple as that. A child can do it. I remember many years ago, I was on a, a camp, and I was talking to a child, a girl, I should think she was about five years old, and she was chattering away like kids do. She said, uh, I've been born again, I've been baptized in water, and I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I thought, precocious brat. <laughs> Pushy parents. So I started asking her questions. And at the end of it, I was humbled. She was. She knew Jesus. She'd been born again by his spirit. She was filled with that spirit. Because it's not about whether a five-year-old can do it. It's about whether Jesus can do it. He can do it with a five-year-old. He can do it with a 50-year-old. He can do it with a 100-year-old. It doesn't matter. But there's got to be a starting point. And if you're not there, let that starting point be this morning. Paul says he wants to be found in Christ. And Christ found in him. It's about spending time with Jesus. It doesn't have to be formal time, like in worship or setting time aside for prayer, that's important, can also be just being aware that Jesus is with us and in us as we're going about everyday things. And when that happens, people start to see Jesus in us. One of the things I love best when somebody gives their testimony is that kind of testimony that goes, I went along to a church and I met all these people and there was something different about them. They had something that I didn't have and the testimony goes on to say, and I found out it was Jesus. Isn't that just the best thing that anybody could say about us? There's something about you, and I don't know what it is, but it's good. And then to go on and find Jesus through us. Paul says he wants to have Christ's righteousness. Christ's holiness, Christ's perfection, not his own. And it's a funny sort of thing, this... I've said it's not about tick boxes. It is about us working. It is about us trying hard. It is about us making decisions. I will do this. I will not do that. But it's about Jesus by his Holy Spirit doing it in and through us. 
because we don't have the strength to do it. We've all got different things, things that make us angry, things that make us say things that we regret, people that annoy us and upset us. We've got things that maybe we're ashamed of that we don't want anybody else to know about. And we can't deal with it on our own. But we can have the righteousness of Christ by his grace. He will work in us, whatever the situation is, and transform us and change us. And no, it probably won't happen overnight. Though it might. I remember hearing the testimony of two, uh, a married couple. They got converted during the days of the sort of Jesus revolution when they were hippies. They were both stoned when somebody shared the gospel with them. And the woman instantly, at the moment that she accepted Christ, became stone-cold sober in that instant by a miracle and never again drank or took drugs. Her husband, in exactly the same situation, he took several years to come off drinking drugs. God works differently in people's lives, but he works. He will give us his righteousness. He wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection through the Holy Spirit living in him. Why do we need the power of the resurrection? Well, because Paul goes on to say the bit we don't want to hear, that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. It's not, as some Christians down the ages have done, a kind of thing that we have to make ourselves suffer that we have to deliberately put hardships on ourselves. That's not what God calls us to do. But what he does say is, if you truly follow me and love me, difficulties, problems, sufferings, hardships will come. We don't see it quite so much in this country. There are places still in our world where you are persecuted just for being a Christian. Here, maybe people at work take the mickey, or people at school take the mickey, or whatever. Maybe there are pressures from members of our family. But also we get into situations that are difficult and painful because that's human life. And Paul says, I've got the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in me, to help me go through that. And the memory that I am following in the steps of Jesus. This is not something that's unknown. And every follower of Jesus will follow in his sufferings because that's how, as Paul puts it, we become like him in his death and in his resurrection. There's a little historical note here that maybe one of the weapons that these false teachers had was a very practical one. You see, in those days, Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. It, Jews had a legal status, um, rights before the law, and the authorities just couldn't do what they liked as far as Jews were concerned. And if other people persecuted them, they had redress through the magistrates and so on. Christianity was an illegal religion because Christians were followers of a criminal who was crucified for treason. So if these Christians became Jews to become a Christian, they gained the protection of the law. Maybe they could avoid all this suffering business. Maybe they could avoid the persecution, the imprisonment, the difficulties... And there's always a temptation for us, isn't there? Take the soft option. Take the easy way out. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to take you out of suffering. I will walk through it with you. I will fill you with my spirit, and I will allow you to experience the power of resurrection through it. 
And all this has to be a conscious, deliberate choice. When you've got the accounts before you, it's your choice. What you put in the profit side and what you put in the loss side. And uh, you can move it around how you like. And we have to choose. Where are we going to put these things? Are we going to put at the top of our profit list the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? It's not the kind of language we talk about, and it seems not very practical, but actually it influences everything. I want to make a suggestion as I finish. We're going to share communion in a few minutes. And during communion, there's plenty of time as bread and wine is being served to think. And I want to suggest that you think, first of all, just about what are the things you value in your life? What are the things that are important in your life, the good things in your life? And just to think, where does Jesus fit? Is he at the top of the list? Somewhere in the middle? And then as you think that through, just listen to see whether Jesus has something to say about the implications of what you're thinking about. You see, God does speak to us in all sorts of different ways. Oh, it's not, doesn't mean we're totally unspiritual. If you go away this morning thinking, well, I didn't recognize God speaking to me. But let's be open that he might, in a direct way, speak to us this morning. Might be next week when you're doing something else. Might be some other time entirely. But God always wants to speak to us and make the things that we learn practical. So my suggestion, as we come to communion in a minute, take time to think the good things, the things you value in your life. Think about where does Jesus fit, and then just be open to hear what he has to say. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't need anything else except Jesus to be saved. We thank you that in his death on the cross and his resurrection, that he has done all that is needed and we are saved totally by your grace. Father, there are all sorts of other things in our lives, good things. Help us to see where they fit. Help us to know the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus is greater than anything else and let Jesus surround all that we are and all that we do. Help us to be filled with your spirit whether in happy times or through suffering, and to know the power of your resurrection in our lives. And may Jesus be glorified through us. For his name's sake, amen.